Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. This one's case to me is particularly senseless. I mean, all murders are, but this one is because there literally seems to be no true motive behind it. Many lives were destroyed and no defining reason of why it occurred. In early January of 1997, a girl was found murdered in a park. But this wasn't the end of the slaughter. Soon a whole family would be gone. This is the story of the Bellevue Massacre. Bellevue, Washington is a small suburban city that's just right outside of Seattle. It's small, with a population of about 103,000. It's very quiet, consisting of family homes and small businesses. So it's not an area that's known for its crime statistics. Perhaps that's what makes what happened even more shocking. On January 4th of 1997, two young boys were riding their bikes on a path and Bellevue Park, when they saw something in the bushes. At first, they just thought it was a pile of clothing. 
they didn't pay it any mind and they just went on their way. When they returned to the park the next day, the pile of clothing was still there, so they went in for a closer inspection. And this time the boys realized that it was actually a body. In fright, they ran home and the one boy's mother called the police. Police arrived at the park around 11.50 a.m. The body was found to belong to 20-year-old Kimberly Wilson, who was dressed in blue jeans, a white t-shirt, and waffle stomper-type boots. It was very evident that there had been some kind of struggle and confrontation. She'd been kicked and stomped with enough force to break three of her ribs and to injure her kidneys and damage her spleen. But the cause of death was obvious strangulation by the white cord that was wrapped around her neck. The motive for the crime was less obvious, but there had been no sexual assault. They looked in her back pocket and found a checkbook with her name and address, so the next step would be to inform her family of her death. And that task fell to Detective Jeff Gomes, who was an investigator for the King Court Medical Examiner's Office. It was a very short drive to the Wilson residence. He discovered all the lights at the home were out, but three cars were in the driveway and the Christmas lights were all on outside. When he knocked on the front door, he didn't get an answer, so he went around to the back. He tried the sliding glass door and he found that open. As he stepped inside the darkened home, he called out, but he heard nothing. And that's when he got that gut feeling that cops sometimes get that something isn't right. They always pay attention to that feeling because that could be a matter of life or death. Drawing his gun, he made his way into the home and everything appeared normal. Still, he followed that feeling that something was off. As he made his way into the hallway upstairs, that feeling was then confirmed. In the hall lay the body of 17-year-old Julia Wilson in a pool of blood. And just like her sister, she had struggled with her attacker. And she apparently had put up one hell of a fight. One of her arms was broken. Her head and neck had been stabbed multiple times. The injuries to her hands and arms looked like they had been defensive wounds. Blood splatter was on the doorway where she was laying. At this point, Gomes wasn't sure if this assailant was still in the house or not. So he carefully made his way down the hall to one of the bedrooms. There in the master bedroom, he found Julia and Kim's mother, Rose, in her bed. She had been stabbed multiple times, many times in the throat. In addition to the stab wounds, her head had been crushed by a heavy object. The headboard was covered in blood splatter. At the foot of the bed was her husband, Bill, who had very similar injuries. He was wearing only a white t-shirt, and on the back of that t-shirt was a shoe print in blood. Bill lay in a pool of blood with very similar injuries to his wife. After making sure the home was clear of any intruders, Gomes now had to focus on finding who would annihilate an entire family, and why. A forensic investigation of the home found cut cords to where the VCR had been, as well as a missing phone and CD player. So the motive at this point appeared to have been a botched robbery. Police collected bloody shoe prints that they found at the scene. But thinking about the overkill of the family made police question the robbery angle. 
Autopsies of the family revealed that they had all died from blunt force trauma and severe stab wounds. Forensic pathologist Dr. David Dixon described the killer as psychologically disturbed with an extreme amount of rage. The motive appears to be the act of killing. So the first step was to interview the neighbors, but no one had seen or heard anything, but they were able to provide insight on the Wilson family. William, or Bill as he was known, was an accountant for a steel firm in a nearby Kirkland area. His boss described him as eager, very loyal, a good employee. His wife, Rose, was an accounting supervisor at the University of Washington Library. The neighbors and co-workers described her as friendly and outgoing. If you look up a photo of her, she just looks like the average mom. Their daughter, Joya, was still in high school, and she was described as a sweet, shy young girl. She had a bright future ahead of her. She'd just been accepted at Central Washington University. There just seemed to be no motive for anyone to kill any of the family in their home. I mean, they had no enemies. So focus then fell to the first victim that they found, Kim Wilson. Kim was a little bit different from the rest of her family. She graduated from the same high school that Joya was attending in 1995. She was described as strong-willed with an independent streak, marching to the beat of a different drummer. After high school, she joined AmeriCorps, and she'd been in San Diego for basic training. She was home for a visit when all of this occurred. A counselor at her former high school said there had been some tension between Kim and her parents during that last year of school. In a year prior to the massacre, neighbors had called the police during a loud altercation between Kim and her parents. But that was the extent of the trouble. Their problems weren't that severe. But it was the thread to possibly something more. The investigator started talking to Kim's friends. The crowd she ran with were described as goth kids, you know, dressing in black and appearing moody and sullen. This group hung out together every weekend at the local Denny's, getting dubbed the Saturday Night Denny's Club. Kim didn't really frequent there much, but two prominent friends did. And according to the others, they frequently discussed death and murder. So now let me just say that discussing death and murder is certainly not a crime. I mean, otherwise, I would probably be in prison without parole. Also, when I was in high school, I dressed in black every day and probably could have been described as goth. I mean, I was not violent at all. And sometimes these are the nicest people you could meet. But apparently, these two friends took things a step further. The two were David Anderson and Alex Barani. They were both 17 high school dropouts but very close friends. They frequently engaged in role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and sword-playing games. According to the others, the two spoke of committing murder basically on a weekly basis. Their friends just laughed it off, not really paying attention. But now this seemed like a detail to investigate. When questioned, the two said that they were playing video games at Alex Barani's house during the murders. 
There were distinctive shoe patterns found at the crime scene, so the police asked about their shoes. Alex claimed to have only one pair of brown shoes, quite unlike the boot patterns that they found at the Wilson home. His three roommates disputed his alibi, though. They saw Alex leave around 10.30 p.m. on January the 3rd, in which he was carrying something long in the sleeve of his trench coat. One roommate said she was up until 3 a.m., and she doesn't recall him being there. Another roommate said Alex returned at 3.30 a.m., dressed all in black. To me, it almost had a ring of the Columbine shooters who would have their spree years later. David Anderson also disputed Alex's alibi. He admitted that they weren't playing video games together. Instead, he said he was in his girlfriend's father's borrowed pickup truck. He told his girlfriend that he was just sitting in the truck at the park at the time of the murders. When he returned the truck, she noticed very little gas was used. Police were keen to the fact that the park was only a few blocks away from the Wilson residence. Five days after the murder, police decided to talk to Alex Barani again. And this time, he admitted to killing the Wilson family. However, he wouldn't admit to having or naming an accomplice. Alex proceeded to give police very specific details about the night of the murders. He claimed that he found Kim Wilson's pager number and David Anderson's address book. She quickly called him back, and the two agreed to meet at a Chevron gas station near the Bellway View home. She drove her sister's car to the water tower in the park, and there the two could walk and do some talking. Alex said he got her there under the pretext of hanging out, but the whole time he intended to kill her. He said when his hands were around her neck, I realized I was strangling her. I remember seeing her face turn blue and I just couldn't stop. I don't know why. I just felt angry. But I don't know why. He then feared that Kim had told her family that she was going to meet Alex and decided that they too had to die. So after strangling her, he drove her car to a spot near the house. He walked around for about an hour before he pulled the car into the driveway of the Wilson home, and he walked in through the unlocked front door, bringing with him a baseball bat and a combat knife. Upon entry into the home, he was startled by the dog barking. When he heard the dog calm down, he entered the bedroom where Belle and Rose were sleeping. The dog once again began barking, waking Rose from her sleep. Alex took the baseball bat that he'd brought with him, and he slammed it into the right side of her head. At this point, he remembers Bill getting up and saying something like, What's going on? Seeing the intruder, Bill came to his wife's defense. But since he was taken off guard, Barani was able to gain the upper hand. He said he dropped the bat, coming at him now with the knife. After stabbing him several times, he said Bill stumbled backward. He then picked the back, bat back up, and he beat the man with it. Bill slumped halfway down on the bed, at the foot where Alex kept hitting him with the bat. Hearing the commotion, the hall light was turned on by Julia. When she saw Alex, she fell to the floor, terrified and crying. She put up her hands to defend herself against the oncoming stabs from the knife. 
To try to protect herself, she had grabbed a piece of closet organizer, and she held it over her head. But Alex was able to pull it away, and he hit her in the face until she stopped moving. As he stabbed her to death, he told her he was sorry for killing her. After killing Julia, he returned to the bedroom, and when he flicked on the light, he saw that Rose was still alive and making gurgling noises. He stabbed her more in the face and head as her head lay sideways. Before he left the house, he stole Belle's wallet, a phone, the CD player, and a VCR. He drove home, and he changed out of his clothes and ditched the weapons in a trash bin. And then he drove the car back to the home. After that, he left. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ...left the car and he walked home. He admitted to the investigators that he didn't have a real motive. He mentioned something about being in a rut. And then he said, There's just that opportunity to experience something truly phenomenal. And even though he claims he acted alone, police were very suspicious. The fact that two different weapons were used was very unusual for one person, and that led them to think that he had an accomplice, and they suspected that person was David Anderson. David Anderson was then brought in for a second round of questioning. So this time he admitted that he lied about the original alibi. He still claimed he was busy driving his girlfriend's father's truck between Bellevue and Washington. However, he claims that he knew Alex was intending to kill the Wilson family. But the three roommates of Alex's said they saw David leave the house with Alex the night of the murders. Police then got a warrant to search both of their homes. At the Barani residence, they found the phone, the VCR, and the CD player. Blood on the VCR was a match for Bill Wilson and a fingerprint on the CD player proved to be Alex's. They also found bloody shoelaces that matched Bill's blood, and at David Anderson's, they found black boots with blood on them, and that blood matched to Julia and Bill Wilson. Experts say the blood stains on them were consistent with a person having been within feet of the victims when they were hit with the bat. David's girlfriend, who lived with him, confirmed that the boots belonged to her boyfriend. So the two were arrested and charged with first-degree murder. 
So why would these two murder an entire family? Background on the two was making the picture a little bit clearer. Alex Barani was born on May 14, 1979 in Ohio. He was a very quick learner. He started reading at the age of three. A very highly intelligent boy. His family relocated to Washington State, and then his parents divorced when he was around eight. And he took that divorce very hard. He became introverted and began distancing himself. He recalls yearning for a sibling, for someone to share the load. The constant shuffling between his parents made it very hard to make friends, since he was never at one school for very long. And after a while, he just quit trying to make friends at all. This led to depression, alienation, and rage. He was a loner until the seventh grade, when he met David Anderson. David Anderson was born on March 2nd in 1979, and he grew up in Bellevue, one of four boys. His father was a security systems manager, and his mother was a stay-at-home mom. But they say life with his father was very difficult because the man was a very strict disciplinarian, and this caused David to take his anger out on others by becoming a bully. But his friends described him as fun to be around. They say he was something of a pretty boy, very popular with girls and having a wide circle of friends. After he met Alex in the seventh grade, the two became very fast friends. Quickly, they became inseparable, sharing a love of fantasy role-playing games. Once they were in high school, they started dressing all in black. A neighbor jokingly referred to them as the Blues Brothers. They were both very into the show Highlander, which was about a sword-wheeling immortal. This inspired them to begin collecting swords. Together, they would have mock battles with pipes that they fashioned into weapons. And while playing, they lived in a fantasy world, where they envisioned themselves as demigods who could become divine by taking human lives. Barani called himself Slicer Thunderclap. He wore his hair in a ponytail, emulating the star of the Highlander show. And while David was very popular, Alex was more quiet and kind of antisocial. He looked up to David immensely, saying he looked at him like a brother. Every Saturday night, they hung out at Denny's, playing role-playing games and discussing their fascination with death. A mutual friend of Kim and David's came forward to the police she decided to shed some light onto a possible motive. Kim and David had actually dated for a while, before then breaking up. She apparently began to identify as a lesbian, which did not sit well with him. He also owed her money, around $500, which she kept steadily hinting at him that he should pay back. By this time, both boys had dropped out of high school. Unbeknownst to Kim, the pair had a hit list of people they wanted to kill, and she was on that list. They had decided to kill her a long time before they carried out the crime. The plan was always to lure her to the park and to murder her. According to Alex, David had convinced him that no matter what crime they committed, they wouldn't serve time since they were minors, and they would be released at age 21 if convicted of anything. It was a way to live out their desire to kill without any repercussions. 
In Alex's own words, he wanted to do something that was inconceivable to a normal person. After they were charged, prosecutors tried them together, but the court felt that they each needed a separate trial. So Alex's defense team cited his diagnosis as bipolar and his being influenced and coerced by David as a defense. Three weeks after this trial began, Alex Barani was then sentenced to four consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. When he was asked if he wanted to say anything, he just responded with, no, I don't think so. He began serving his sentence just a week later. A month and a half later, David Anderson was also sentenced to four consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. So their trials and that sentencing set a precedent and soon provoked a change in the law. The state since declared that juveniles sentenced to life without parole had to be reviewed for the chance of parole. So far, both remain behind bars. But since there's such a debate about the sentencing, many people wonder if their terms set will be served out in their entirety. I watched a show about the murders and I was really shocked at how smart and articulate Alex Barani seemed to be. To me, it was just a shame that he ruined his entire life and the lives of others simply for the thrill of killing. And David Anderson's only motive seems to be a measly debt and a bit of being brokenhearted. I mean, this is certainly not a good reason to kill Kim Wilson, and definitely not a motive to kill an entire family. And oddly, it was not the only time the town of Bellevue was rocked by senseless murders. In 1994, Tariq Rafay and his wife Sultana and their 21-year-old disabled daughter were bludgeoned to death in their home. That culprit was their own son and his friend, and their motive was a large life insurance policy that was paid out to the son. Killing one person is horrendous enough, and killing a whole family is completely abhorrent behavior. I mean, this is so sad and senseless. To me as a parent, it's very scary to think that my child could potentially make friends with someone who might, you know, someday decide that they were going to kill me as if being a parent isn't hard enough. The events of January 1997 changed the quiet community of Bellevue, Washington. That was the case of the Bellevue murders. I said a while ago that I would have some podcast recommendations. I was inspired to do a podcast because I'm such a fan of so many different ones. My definite go-to is always Joe Rogan. That's the one I've been listening to for years. After that, I'd say my favorites are My Favorite Murder and Last Podcast on the Left. I got to see those guys recently live, and that was one hell of a show. In February, I'm getting to go to Columbus to see My Favorite Murder live. I'm thoroughly addicted to lore, thanks to my friend Emma. And I think some of my favorite true crime podcasts are definitely Case File. That guy's voice is amazing. Generation Y, Insight, and True Crime All the Time, just to name a few. Recently, I've discovered The Payless Murders, The Minds of Madness, True Crime Storytime, Pleasing Terrors, True Crime Sweden, and my new favorite, 
the Serial Killer podcast. I also love Forgotten News podcast and Fatal. Both are very well done. And if you're a Twin Peaks fan, I highly recommend Ghostwood. And those are just some of the few ones that I listen to. And when I need a true crime break, my go-to is always Hold On with Eugene Merman and WTF with Mark Maron. My dream is that someday Patton Oswalt will start a podcast. And that's a perfect segue into my next topic. I recently got an advanced copy of probably my most anticipated book, Michelle McNamara's book about the East Area Rapist. I almost lost my mind when a coworker said they saved it for me. The book itself isn't being released until February. Michelle was married to Patton Oswald, and she sadly passed away last year. She had this amazing blog called True Crime Diary, and she'd been researching the unsolved case of the original Night Stalker, a.k.a. the East Area Rapist, or she dubbed him the Gold State Killer. He's responsible for 12 murders and as many as 50 rapes in the state of California. He initially started out breaking into homes, but then he progressed to raping and then led up to murder. He would tie up couples and he would place dishes on the man's back, telling him if he heard movement at all, he would kill the woman that he was then about to rape. And these crimes have been unsolved for well over 30 years. Michelle McNamara has done the most extensive research on the case outside of the actual investigators who worked on the cases. And apparently she spent over two years of hard research on this book. And she would work at night after her husband and daughter went to bed. She put her whole heart and soul into this book. Although it was unfinished, it's been perfectly put together, and it's riveting. I only have time to read it at night before I go to bed, and let me just say, it's creeping me out. This guy really stalked his victims, and nothing deterred him. It really makes you consider your own security in your home. I have been checking my doors and windows like crazy after reading this. And I'm not disappointed at all that my new next door neighbor has set up a camera outside. I mean, more power to him. And this book is really well written. Michelle McNamara is really my writing idol. She truly had a gift. So I highly urge you to get a copy of this when it comes out in February. Even though I have the advance, I'm going to buy one to support her. I mean, I'd love to see her hit the bestseller list. Her passing was such a shock and so sad. Her husband wasn't his usual funny self for a very long time, but I'm happy to report that he's found love again with actress Meredith Salinger, and he seems very happy. I don't get as much reading done since I've started the podcast. Last month, I finished Caitlin Darty's From Here to Eternity. She's a mortician who traveled the world to see how different cultures deal with death and funerals. And this is really a five-star read. You definitely have to check it out. And I've just recently started reading Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris's The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's quest to transform the grisly world of Victorian medicine, and it's really good so far. But of course, it's taken a backseat until I finish this Michelle McNamara book. So thank you so much for tuning in. I want to thank you so much to user Alyssa Marie for the great review on iTunes. I really appreciate that. 
Thank you so much to her and everyone else who has left a good review. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next week. And to everybody, have a very merry holiday, whatever you celebrate. And catch you soon.